Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Well, shalom, shalom, everybody. Hey, welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Out of Ashes Ministries in southwest Louisiana. It is great to be with you all this week. I hope you are having a great week as we prepare for Passover in just a few days. And I'm excited to talk about Passover today, uh, following on from last week's uh, uh, last week's episode. And so I'm really, really stoked about Pesach this year. Uh, Every year, it's just another unfolding, another level. It's so good. And so thank you guys all for being here uh, with me today. I really appreciate it. If it is your first time stopping by uh, Image Bearers Radio on Hebrew Nation Online, then let me just say thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, thank you guys so much for being a great community and uh, for the the support and all the things and sharing the, the, the show and the episodes and all. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, big shout out to Hebrew Nation Online for continuing to host us and giving us this opportunity. It's, uh, it's really awesome thing. And uh, so this is all a show about how we bear the image of Hashem uh, in a real and meaningful way in our world. And uh, so all the things we talk about, the questions we ask, the the things that we deal with are all to that end. So uh, thanks again for stopping by. Of course, coming up uh, is uh, Pesach and Hag Hamatzot. So if you, uh, depending on which calendar you're on, um, Pesach is first night of Pesach is Friday evening. Second night is Saturday evening. So um, here at OAM, we're doing two seder's, or we're doing a community seder, and then every individual family is doing uh, their own seder in their homes on Saturday evenings. And then we start Hakamatzot uh, unleavened bread on Sunday, Saturday evening, going into Sunday, and then it ends, of course, the next Shabbat. So uh, I'll be looking forward to spending some time studying and uh, just you know spending some really good time. And we also start counting. The Omer, uh, Sifarat HaOmer, there, and I love the counting of the Omer. It's always such an awesome devotional time and developmental time. So we'll be doing that together. And so it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful season. We got a lot of things going on, but you know, man, it's just that important time to connect with Hashem. Of course, every day is important, but it's that important time uh, that we really dedicate ourselves on a new level. And hopefully, and I believe this is true. Hopefully, um, we've done this several years now, or maybe a couple years, maybe it's your first year, but uh, hopefully every year we develop more and more and we grow more and more uh, to bear His image better. So uh, there you go. And so uh, a lot of stuff coming up on the calendar, great things are happening here at OAM, and uh, just want to say quickly, as we do every week, uh, join us, invite you to join us on Shabbat at 10 a.m. Central. Um, we are out in the country. We are, our facility is out in a rural area where we don't have great internet. So I always say during these, uh, invitations, like, hey, we should live stream every, every Shabbat. And that is 
true. Um, however, like last week, our internet was down, nothing we could do to fix it, and so we, we weren't able to stream. Uh, in cases like that, sometimes we don't. But hey, come check us out, outofashesministries.org, uh, as well as Facebook and YouTube. We would love to have you uh, join us if you can. So let us go to the Father in prayer before we begin this episode, and then we will jump right in. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity. What an incredible privilege it is to be uh, together with this great community of Image Bearers Radio and Hebrew Nation. I thank you that you bless every one of them as we prepare for Passover and make this Passover like no one ever before in their lives. Amen. Hi guys, so hey, if you weren't with us last week or didn't get to catch the show last week, I would encourage you to go back and check it out. Uh, I posted in the archives at Hebrew Nation Online, also on uh, iTunes at Out of Ashes Ministries at our podcast on iTunes or uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Um, we are looking at Passover as protest this year, and I began to kind of talk about this on on this last Shabbat. Did a radio show about it last week. Talked about it on Shabbat doing part two. Today and then we'll be doing part two on on uh, on uh, Sunday for Hakamatsu, uh, um, and we're talking about Passover as protest. And I I realized after thinking about it a good bit that I, I want to say this carefully and and hope not to offend anyone, but I think that I am probably talking to a mostly politically conservative audience. I would guess that would be true. Um, and so when we talk about protest right now in 2022, of course, there's a lot of imagery that uh, it evokes, right? You know, when we say the word protest, it's kind of become a, you know, a kitchen table word. And it's become a word that every family you know, in America is now very, very familiar with. And we have uh, real modern day like images you know, of the last couple of years of uh, what protest uh, should look like, can look like, you know, hopefully doesn't look like, all, all these different things. I want to be really clear that when we're talking about these things and we're talking about Passover as protest, um, that I am not pushing a left-wing agenda. It, sound, it, may, it may sound that way. It may, you know, that may be when you hear a protest, you may think that. I don't want that to come across. Um, we, are, we are pulling ideas and concepts from a book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory um, called Ceremony and Celebration and his introduction to the Holy Days. And uh, this, is, this is some of his ideas coupled with some of my ideas and kind of developing uh, some things. Last week we talked about the feasts and the festivals, uh, as used a Shrek reference, uh, like an onion, <laughs> right? Um, and that every year that we celebrate them, hopefully another layer is peeled back and another layer is removed and we grow in depth and understanding. And so I want to be really clear um, that we're trying to, to discuss and present a biblical worldview, not a political agenda. Um, I have said on the show several times, I myself am, I consider myself conservative, probably more libertarian, um, 
in in that uh, we live out in the country. We live on a farm. I don't want anybody messing with me. I really don't want to mess with anybody else. Um, and, you know, if somebody makes a dumb decision, then they have the consequences of that. If I make a dumb decision, I have to bear the consequences of that. It's just the way it is. Um, I don't know, you know, everything about the conservatives or the liberal parties or whatever. I'm not in the weeds like that. But um, I just want to be left alone and I want to leave other people alone as far as uh, policing their lives and, you know, legislating their their morals and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, uh, I, I want to get that kind of out of the way and, and make that really super clear. Um, you know, when we talk about Pesach, uh, we tend to – we talked about this last week, and I want to kind of develop this a little bit more This and get you to think about this a little bit more. But as we talk about Pesach, as we celebrate Pesach year after year, um, I, I would like for us to think about what what Pesach means to us as far as – um, you know, what, what do we, how do we interpret Pesach? I guess I'm not sure how to ask the question to, to kind of evoke the response I want, but how do we, how do we interpret Pesach, especially in the light of Yeshua, um, and what the, the apostolic scriptures say about him and what, you know, is, I, I, this is my feeling. I'll just give you my gut. This is my feeling. This is something that I have wrestled with the last several years as we've kept Pesach now, I guess going on about 15 years. Um, and something that I've never considered uh, until the last couple years, it's been hard to wrap my head around, or, or it's been a, a journey to wrap my head around. But we tie Yeshua so closely to Pesach, which is rightly so, right? It's the time of his, his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. So, yes, we should tie Yeshua to Pesach. The scriptures obviously do that. And so I, I'm not trying to take that away. Um, but with with Pesach only being or mostly being about Yeshua, there's a couple things that happen for us as Western American Christians or, you know, uh, followers of Yeshua. Uh, One of the things that happens is that we can tend to downplay the original uh, Exodus and the original Pesach um, as because it was all really just about Yeshua anyway, right? Um, which, Which I believe it is. However, we need to make sure that it can be all about Yeshua, but that we don't downplay the fact that um, there were real people that came out in the Exodus. There were real slaves that really found redemption and freedom. Um, There were real families, real mothers and fathers with children uh, that didn't want their children to grow up as slaves in Egypt as they they had and their grandparents had. Uh, There are real people that God loved, that God had promises for, that God had destiny for. And if we if we can tend to say, well, if it's all about Yeshua, I don't think we really mean this. But what tends to come across is this feeling and this idea that like, well, yeah, you know, it minimizes um, that original exodus and the original story. And then what the story has meant to every generation up to Yeshua. Right. So. I want us to be really, really cognizant of that idea that, no, that the we need to go back and really, really live in the original Exodus. As the, the, the Seder says or the, the Haggadah says, uh, if you use a Haggadah, you know that we're encouraged that everyone that does the Seder um, should, should place themselves as if they were in the original Exodus and living in that original, uh, that original moment, that original history. And so that's one thing that can happen. And and we don't want to we don't want to do that. We want to be able to hold both both of those things at the same time because they're both true, right? And so another thing that can happen also is that 
um, it, when we ta- when we just think about it as relating to Yeshua, as it being all about Yeshua, is that it, it tends to become, and even in our culture, and and I think Western Christianity, which we're all, you know, that's where we all come from, probably the vast majority of you listening. And I know some people get offended and say, well, I'm not a Christian. And okay, I get it. But we come from that. Um, and, and it's in us. I mean, we can't, you can't deny it. It's in you. Um, it's so interesting. You know, someone who's, who's Torah pursuant now, who's following the Torah and doing their best to, you know, to, to keep Torah. Um, you can usually tell if they have a Baptist background, Pentecostal background, AOG background, you know, uh, Church of God, whatever. You can usually tell where their background is because it's just it's just human nature. We hold on to a lot of of what we've been, and, and it is who we are. And so, I don't mean to offend anybody when I talk about Christians. It's just it just is what it is. Okay, um, so this. Uh, Christianity, Western Christianity, tends to be very individualistic, and it's a really hard concept. I talked about this a lot on Shabbat um, and really tried to, to challenge and develop this idea. It's really hard for us to uh, to get our heads around uh, communal redemption, communal salvation. Um, you know, I think about I think about um, you know my local. Here in Louisiana, we have parishes, not counties. So um, here in our local parish, I think like if, if Hashem said, okay, I'm going to deliver, um, deliver your parish, I'm going to deliver Vernon Parish or Beauregard Parish um, right out and you know, going to bring you to a land of milk and honey. Cool. I know that for me, one of my first instincts would be like, um, that's great and all, but you know, there's some people here that really don't deserve to go. Like, you know, there's some people here that like, have you, have you looked on Facebook at the arrest reports or, you you know what I mean? I would be okay. And I know a lot of other people that would be okay, but this idea of communal um, redemption is hard for us as, you know, as Western Christians to, to wrap our heads around the idea that in Egypt, you know, not everybody was, was worthy. Um, There were some that were. But not everybody was. There were some that weren't even trying, I guess, instead of saying worthy. Some that weren't even trying, you know, and, and probably some that didn't even want to be rescued. And yet Hashem called those people out. And, and the, you know, the, one of the hard things as, as we look at the Jewish people is to realize that Judaism is an, a nationality and it's an ethnicity and a religion. And we don't have anything like that on our side of the family. Um, so there, there's some challenges in this idea of communal. What, so we look at it from a very individualistic standpoint, right? And and one of the things that I think this idea of Passover as protest does, again, it's not a, a, a social agenda, but for me, what it's done for me this year is really helped to broaden my view of, in other words, if Passover is just about Jesus, Yeshua, dying being in the ground for three days and rising on the third day, and then later ascending to the Father, if that's just so I can be saved and I can be in covenant or I can be made a part of Israel or however you you think about that and you want to think about that, if that's what it's about, then that's, for me, that's a very narrow view. Not that it's not miraculous, not that it's not powerful, not that I'm, I'm not thankful for his redemptive um, sacrifice, you know, his redemptive offering toward to Hashem. But it can be very narrow because it's all about he and I, which is cool. 
and we've got to have that part of the relationship squared away. But it it can be only about that. And then it can be only about, uh, you know, me being right before God and me being in right relationship with Yeshua. And and the world around us t- can tend to go by the wayside, right? And and I think about this and, you know, some of the 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 Baptist and charismatic, you know, spirit filled circles I've I've been in, you know, this this idea that you were one way in church on Sunday, or maybe even one way in fellowship on Shabbat, and then the rest of the week you're a different person. Because the idea is that, well, it's between me and God and the rest of the world can kind of go to hell. Excuse me. But that's the attitude that I'm trying to get to. And this idea of Passover as protest when we think about this as a larger, uh, this being a larger ethic to the events of Pesach, then it should bring more accountability on us uh, and to us as we think about what our role is when we sit down to celebrate, when we sit down to comp- contemplate, when we're keeping the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all these things, what are we doing? Are we just being really thankful for our personal redemption? which is great. Again, we should do that. But do we realize that there may be a bigger picture and there may be a bigger story and a bigger calling um, that Hashem has called us to? We've been called, most of us, many of us, maybe all of us, have been called out of Christianity. Um, and But into what? Into just another smaller, isolated religion or another smaller, isolated life of faith? No, I don't think so. I think he called us out of those walls so that we could expand our faith walk. We could expand our image bearing, not to be confined by the doctrines of whatever, you know, theological statements of faith and all those kinds of things that we came from, but so that we can finally have the freedom to explore and live out all the wild and crazy and awesome places that God wants to take us. And we can live out and express all the amazing, unfathomable, sometimes uncomfortable things that Hashem is teaching us, right? So when we, we talked last week about, we'll, we'll spend the rest of this segment and we'll get into new, new things in the next segment, but I just want to kind of recap last week in case you didn't, you weren't along for the ride. And um, so in, in this book, uh, Ceremony and Celebration, uh, there's, there's sections, Rabbi Sachs uh, has sections on uh, uh, Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Pesach, uh, and Shavuot, and so the and in within like the Pesach, he covers Hakamatzot, you know, and, and some of those details. But uh, it's not a halakhic writing. It's not about how to keep these things. It's more about trying to challenge what these things are about and what they should remind. Again, kind of peeling back the layers and just looking at it a different way, stepping around the side and looking at it from a different angle. So he says um, in this section. Um, he talks about Pesach being more than just one festival in the calendar, right? Uh, just It's more than just the start of the calendar year. It's more than just the start of the festival year. But it is, uh, it's even more than just Israel's birth and, you know, as a, as a free, um, as a free nation uh, heading towards a, a promised land, right? It's more than just that. And he talks about four ways that Pesach is central to the biblical, to biblical faith and to the Hebrew faith. And so first, uh, which we covered last week, these first two, first is um, there is a, an incredible foreshadowing. I don't like that word necessarily, but there's an incredible parallel or parallels 
between the life of Abraham and the the nation of Israel. And so he makes we make a bunch of those connections in last week's episode. They're almost word for word um, as Abraham comes from Urkastim or the Chaldees and makes his way down to Egypt and then back into the promised land. It's just incredible how the events line up. And then even the story of Jacob, of Yaakov, we see the same story replaying itself. Now, what one thing that is cool is is that um, we we after, we ask ourselves the question, or I ask the question. Maybe maybe nobody else asked this question, uh, but uh, asking questions is what got me here, and so I'm going to just keep doing that thing. Um, but when we look at the biblical narrative, we see all these parallels between Avraham's story and and the Israelite story, and I ask myself. Was that was Abraham going through those things because they were foreshadowing? Is this like prophetic? Um, and and w- the the only critique I have of that way of looking at it, or the problem I have with that, is that I other than God saying your descendants will you know will be will go down and will spend four hundred years and will be captives blah blah blah. Um, other than that, I, I mean I didn't just disrespectfully blah 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 that you know what I mean. Um, other than that. That promise, um, I don't know that anybody in Abraham's time would have known that one day there would be these 12 sons and this father that would find themselves in Egypt and how they would be treated. And then they would they would be taken out with plagues. There would be this man named Moshe and his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. And there would be these miraculous plagues and they would walk, you know, through the through the the sea on dry ground and, and all these things. I don't know that that's what would have been in the mind of Avraham Avinu or in the people around him um, as he was living through his life. There are huge parts of Avraham's life that we just don't know about, right? So one statement I heard, and, I, and forgive me, I can't remember where I heard it, but is the idea that if, there is, if there's a fact or if there's a historical detail given in the Torah, it is never, never, never only for history's sake. If you have a historical detail or a quote-unquote fact in the Torah, um, and I like to say in the Tanakh at large, and actually in the Prikash Shah as well, if you have specifics given, it is not for his history keeping sake. It's not for record keeping. It is strictly because there is a point that is trying to be made. We have years of Abraham's life that were probably really important that we just don't know anything about. So I tend to think that when when the, the Torah was the, and the Bible was coming together, the people that were taking different scrolls and putting this together into one collection – um, we're looking at the the parts of Abraham's story and life that mirror that Israel would later mirror, and they included those to show this continuity. I hope that makes sense without being too heretical. Uh, but it's a beautiful story, and it's something that we don't see a lot of times because we're looking for historical accuracy, right? So this so this this first thing is all about this the, the way that the story is being told. The second is what what uh, Rabbi Sachs calls the reason for the commands, and I love this, and I I've always wondered about this, but I've never never uh, kind of heard it or read it and, and got got it to put so succinctly. Um, basically, uh, the phrase "remember" or you know that you were once slaves in Egypt. That phrase comes up over and over and over in the Torah as commands are given. I command you to do this, blah blah blah. 
because remember you were slaves in Egypt, right? You were once slaves in Egypt. That comes up over and over and over as a reason to perform, to, to, uh, to keep and guard the commands. I think that's fascinating. That is central to biblical faith and biblical Hebraic faith is to remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. That's why you keep these commandments. What does that mean? What does that mean for us and how should we think about that? And so he has some great stuff, some great insights uh, into that. And, um, you know, things about the Sabbath and, and, and about, about all of these things. And so when we start to think about this fundamental reason for the commands, you know, people say, well, why do you keep the Torah? And you might ask yourself, why am I keeping the Torah? The Torah gives you that answer. <laughs> Hashem himself gave you that answer. You, you keep the Torah because you were once slaves in Egypt. Yeah, but I wasn't a slave in Egypt. Well, that's why we have the apostolic writings to help understand where we fit in that part of the story and how it can be applicable for our lives through Yeshua. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about this and then jump into the new stuff right after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So just to kind of put a cap on the, the second point uh, of why Pesach is central to Hebraic faith, uh, Rabbi Sachs writes this. He says, monotheism is a theology, but it is also and no less fundamentally a political philosophy Whoa, with revolutionary implications. Okay, this is so cool. He says, if there is only one God, then there is no hierarchy in heaven. And if he set his image on human beings as such, then there is no justified hierarchy without consent on earth either. But to say this is one thing, to live it, to breathe it, to feel it was another. There is only one way of so doing. A nation in exile must experience what it feels like to be on the wrong side of power. Why not a nation in its own land? Because a nation in its own land cannot but assume that the way things were is the natural course of things. To create a new society, you have to leave an old one. This is why Abraham had to leave behind all that was familiar to him. This is why the Israelites could, know, could, uh, could be charged to construct a different social order. Because they, were not, I'm sorry, because they uh, knew they were not Egyptians. They did not think they were. The Egyptians did not think they were. Outsiders can see the relativity of social structures that insiders believe to be inscribed in the nature of the human condition itself. Holy, I mean, there's so, so much there. So, great example, okay? When we were in the church, all right, we saw those things as the natural order. That's just the way that faith is done, whether you were Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever, Catholic or Nazarene or that is just, and you looked at other faiths, maybe other denominations, depending on how militant and belligerent your denomination was, but maybe you looked at other practices and it seemed foreign to you because yours was the natural way. You didn't know any other way, right? And then what happens when we come out of that system? 
Well, then we begin to critique it, all of its uh, its foundations, its implications, all of the things that surround it. We we then have a way to critique it because we were a part of it, right? Um, I was never Catholic. I've been to Catholic masses a few times, um, you know, for weddings, funerals, you know, just to go a couple of times. And but I can't critique Catholicism necessarily because I've never been a part of it. I mean, I can stand on the sideline and say, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, whatever. But I don't know it intimately. I don't know necessarily why they believe what they believe, and I don't know the the heart of what why they believe what they believe. That's a different thing. But I think this this section that we just read is so super important that the reason for the commands is because you were once slaves in Egypt. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to be minimized. You know what it's like to be dehumanized. You know what it's like to have your value, uh, the value of your life be how much you can produce. You know what it's like to have the, the, the all that you are is just what you can produce. And if you can't produce, then your value is decreased. And I know some of you, a lot of you maybe, feel like that in the world that we're in today. But God doesn't view you that way. Your job may, your relationships may, your own spouse may, your children might, your pastor or bishop or whatever might. But you are not, your value is not. That's one of the beautiful things about Pesach and one of the lessons in the Shabbat is that you are not, your value is not based on what you can produce. We covered this in our Genesis series, that, that as a slave, you're, you're now, as a former slave, you're now free. And so even on the Shabbat, not only does the Israelite get, get to take a day off, but anyone, any slave, any Evedivrit, uh, a Hebrew slave that works in the master's house is by Torah command, by law, commanded to take a day off because their value is not based on how much they produce, even though they are a servant, a slave to the, the master. It's just incredible. So, all, so as you're reading through the Torah, as you're reading through the Parshiot, especially now that we're in Vayikra and we'll go to, to Bamidbar next, and especially in Devarim, you hear this phrase, you were once slaves in Egypt because you were once slaves in Egypt. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. Begin to expand on that concept and really meditate and think about why that is. Because in order to create a new society, a new way of living, a new way of being human, a new way of doing life together with other people, you have to know what God doesn't want, right? You have to know what, what the, the antithesis is in order to know what God wants you to create now. You have to, the slavery was in the bones of the Israelite. It was their identity. It was who they were 400 years. It was, it was who they were. And yet Hashem said, no, that's not who you are. I want you to create something that when you, when you deal with people, you never treat them like you were treated. When you look at authority, you never look at authority. The authority that's in, in Israel, it can be nothing like the authority that you had in Egypt. One of, the, one of the most prominent examples of this is several places in the Torah. We are told about when Israel would have a future king, right? And, and the Torah commands the king a couple of things. You know, they're right copies of the Torah. They are not supposed to have a large or many horses is the way it says, which means a large army. And 
thirdly, or secondly, or thirdly, they're also not supposed to have many wives, right? And so what, what it's, just, it's sad, but it's so incredibly, I don't know, it's overwhelming to look at Israel as they come into the promised land and, and Joshua, and we go through the book of Joshua and, and we see the events that happen. And then we go through the judges and the kings and we get to David and it's what's, what's called the golden age, right, of Israel under King David. And then you have King Solomon. And what you have under Solomon is he does, while he's the wisest person ever to have lived, and, you know, what, what we think of as one of the richest, um, he, he violates two, those two commands where he, he amasses many horses and chariots, right? And he takes wives, many wives. We know that's one of the things he's most popular for, sadly. The horses and chariots, a, a large army may start out as defense, which in, in, in biblical faith we, we're expected to do our part. However, we're protected by the right hand of Hashem, the, the strong arm of, of God Almighty. So, yeah, we do our part, but our protection is that he will make a table before, uh, for us in the presence of our enemies, right? And so we, when we have, when, when leadership, when empire amasses these armies, it may start out for defense, but what inevitably happens and this happens over and over in human history, just, I mean, think about history. Eventually, at some point, that army is going to be turned inward on its own people. And Hashem, in his wisdom, knows that. And so he put up a safeguard against that. And of course, Solomon broke the, the commandment, and that's when it was happening. Secondly, all these wives. So not only did Shlomo take a lot of wives, he took foreign wives, and each one of these foreign wives, they became his ultimate downfall as he allowed there to be high places on the Mount of Olives and all over the land of Israel where you could worship your God there while the temple still stood in Jerusalem. Oh, and speaking of the temple, how, were the, how did uh, Pharaoh build, how did the Pharaohs build all of their you know, Egyptian empire? They did it on the backs of slaves. How did Solomon build the first temple? We might not want to call it slavery, but he enlisted the men of Israel and made them work as a part of, it was, it was a, a tribute, a tax almost. Well, I think it, the scripture does call it, it's like a tax, that they had to come and work a certain amount of time and they got a certain amount of time off. They were forced to do that. So as we talked in our Genesis series a couple of years ago about the, the, the battle of two kingdoms or the tale of two kingdoms, there is the kingdom of Shalom, where there is godly order and structure and peace and Shalom, wholeness, completeness and rest. And then there is the kingdom of empire and empire looks like Egypt. It looks like Babylon. It looks like Rome. It looks like Greece, Assyria, etc., etc. right? It looks like oppression, slavery, uh, chaos, minimalization, dehumanization, right? And, and so violence and, and all these things. So Solomon and the nation of Israel end up becoming empire. They started out as Shalom under Moshe and Joshua. They end up becoming empire. 
and then God sends them to exile. By the way, what were the reason? What is the reason they went into the exile? Well, number one was idolatry. That's their relationship to Hashem. They put other gods before Hashem, or, or alongside Hashem. But secondly, and and I would say right up there, close, is the way they treated each other. Look all through the prophets. What are the prophets castigating Israel about? It's all about how you treat the widows and the orphans, the fatherless, right? It's all about how you treat the, the elderly, how you treat each other to the point that God says, you know what? I don't want your offerings anymore. I want you to make shuvah. I want you to tear down your idols and I want you to start treating each other with the dignity that you did, that your forefathers did when they left Egypt. Remember you were slaves once in Egypt. I mean this so, so let's go back to the beginning of, of the first segment. When we talk about and we think about the Exodus and Pesach being only about Yeshua, and, and that can lead into about our personal salvation, do you see how, how narrow and small that makes the message? Not Again, not like our personal redemption and salvation. And I know that many of you, I've been delivered from some life-threatening things. I know many of you have incredible testimonies of things you've been delivered from. That is miraculous. And that is something to be celebrated. And, and that is a, a, that is something to be held up as, as a picture of the Passover, that redemption, that release from bondage. But there is more to the story than that. Yeshua is not the end of the journey. Salvation is not the end. It's not like, oh, I just, man, I finally made it through my, you know, I finally made it these years and, and you know, Baruch Hashem, bless God, he saved me from all these things and now I'm saved, now I can relax and I can take a deep breath. If that's the way we view it, I think we have it wrong. I'll just go flat out and say it. But Yeshua and salvation and his redemption and bringing us near to Hashem and into the kingdom is the beginning. It's the beginning of the journey. Because the Pesach is not just about individual Israelites being redeemed from slavery, as miraculous and as powerful and necessary as that is. It's secondly about communal, communal. And I say individual first because community is made up of a bunch of individuals, right? You have to have both. It can't be just individual. It can't be just communal. It has to be both. Individuals who decide to take a stand of allegiance for Hashem and do that together in community, which is one of the reasons why the, the I feel like, this is personal opinion, I feel like we may be guilty of aborting the Torah movement. Because 10 years ago, the Torah movement was on fire. It was sweeping across the country. And yes, there are still people that Hashem is opening their eyes. And yet it's, it, it's, lost its, it's lost its momentum, I feel like. It may just be me. And if I'm wrong, hopefully I am. But it seems like we, we all got really fired up when God brought us into Torah. And then we started meeting with other people and we had disagreements about the name and the calendar and the, you know all the the shape of the earth and all this different stuff and if and it just fractured and fractured and fractured and fractured 
and then now you have just these little camps everywhere of people that are holding, sticking to their thing. And we have a, a great individual fervor for Hashem, for Yeshua, and for the Torah. But we lack a communal fervor and a communal faith because we just can't get along. So you have to have both. We have to have both. We have to have be fervent in our worship to Hashem, and we have to be able to do it with other people. And if there's any place where I believe that the, the Torah movement, the Hebrew Roots movement, has lost it, it's not in, listen, you know what, have your calendar, have your view of cosmology, have your view of the pronunciation, I, because I know many of you and many, many people out there, they've really taken this stuff seriously. It's not a joke. It's not something, it's not, you know, to be minimized. You've studied, you've studied and you've researched and you've, you've listened to hours and hours and hours of teachings, different kinds of teachings, and you've decided this is the way that I want to walk. And you know what? Props to you for that. I appreciate that when someone walks differently than I do, but they know why they do it. I love that. But those, those th- because someone says the name this way and someone says the name the other way, I don't think that's the biggest detriment to the Hebrew Roots Movement. I think the biggest detriment to the Hebrew Roots Movement is that we haven't been able to bring those differences together and still walk together. And I know the, the, the scripture that's going to come out is, well, how can two walk in unity unless they be agreed? Find another human being that you agree with 100% and tell me how you, and then you can walk in unity. Good luck. Many of you are married. You've been married for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You and your wife, hey, we don't even agree with our own selves most of the time. So are we not in unity with, our, with ourselves? That's not what that scripture is talking about. It doesn't mean you have to believe everything perfectly like someone else. So this, this thing about remembering the reason for the commands, remembering why you were slaves in Egypt as a reason for doing the commands, and thinking about it in the light of us who have Yeshua who has brought us near to Hashem as the, as the Korban Pesach and purified us and brought us into the camp of Israel. I hope that we can start to see how this is about something bigger. Yeshua did not redeem us and purify us and bring us into the commonwealth of Israel so we could sit there and just be safe and saved and bide our time in this hellacious world until we get ripped up out of here in the rapture and then we go to sit on a cloud and walk streets of gold and, you know, fish in the crystal sea or whatever for all of eternity. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to push against is that very idea. And thinking of Passover as protest brings that, well, what are we protesting against? Well, the reason why the commands were given, because you were once slaves in Egypt. We're protesting against the world. We are, Yeshua brought us in. He, his, his offering of himself, not only during on the cross, but his entire life and all of his teaching and everything that he lived for and stood for, all of that brings us in to show us the counter. We've all lived and grown up in an Egypt of some sort. Maybe you had an abusive parent. And now that you know Yeshua and the freedom and the liberty of the Torah, the life-giving uh, power of the Torah and of Yeshua, now you know that it is your job to not be that. 
but you wouldn't have known if you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have the, the passion to be a loving, caring, um, you know, disciplined, but caring and compassionate father or mother if you wouldn't have known the opposite. If you, wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have worked for that boss that was just a complete narcissist and abusive, you wouldn't know what it was like to treat people under you with respect and dignity and honor their schedules and their lives and their, their voice and their opinions, their ways of doing things, right? It's this, it's that we've come, Yeshua and Hashem's mighty hand has brought us out of things and redeemed us from things so that we would be able to not only be saved and enjoy our salvation, that's wonderful, but that's not where it stops. That's just where it starts. Now we, have, we are obligated to go and do something with that salvation, the apostolic scriptures talk about being born again and having a new life. That is the story of Pesach. That is the Israelite story of Pesach. New life, a new creation. Not just created new, but created to create. Recreated, not just to enjoy a new state of being, but recreated to reproduce that state of being. And so, as much as we want to bash the church, and believe me, I have had my time and still do in moments of ranting and soapboxing about the church and all of its ills, when you see ministries like jail ministries, like, like you know, uh, single mother ministries and, and you know, uh, women's abuse ministries and, and all these different things, feeding people all around the world and, and in local communities and and reaching out and all that kind of stuff that is embodying see we in the Hebrew roots movement we get so we get so locked into our individual interpretations and all these things and we disassociate and I'm guilty of it and and I'm praying that Hashem gives me the wisdom and courage and the 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 ability the courage to be able to step back into that world because that is something that we are missing Hashem didn't just save us so that we could enjoy being in the land of milk and honey. We have to get in there and produce and create a different society from the one that we left. Was your church abusive? Was your pastor abusive? Were the people that you went to church with abusive and judgmental? Then why are you the same way? The reason God opened the commandments to you is because you were once slaves in that Egypt. And so you are accountable now and responsible now to do it differently. And yet many of us are the most judgmental. We think some Christians are judgmental. Hold my shofar. It, we are so judgmental because we don't understand the reason for the commands is that you were once slaves in that Egypt. We think we're all clean and nice and we got it going on now. And so we can judge and we can denigrate and we can throw shade on all these other people. And it's just, we don't understand that the Pesach is something bigger than just the birth of a nation or just our individual redemption. It is about creating something new, a new society, a new life for yourself and your family and those people around you, creating a new humanity, a new way to be human. When Again, when they left Egypt, the slave was, re, was, was identified now as an autonomous, valuable creation, image bearer of Hashem. 
And there are some of us that need to understand that the people around you, while they don't agree with you and don't, and they may even talk bad about, oh, you're in a cult and you're this or that, they are part of the image of Hashem. And just because they treat you badly or have treated you badly, you now have a responsibility to treat them better than they treat you because you were once there. You were once the one, you were one, once the one that was being castigated and being dehumanized and your value is being stripped. And if you're still there, it ought to be all the more lesson that Hashem is trying to tell you, just as he did the Israelites, you can't be different unless you know what Hashem hates. And you're living that, and it's becoming a part of who you are, but there is a Passover coming, there is an Exodus coming, where Hashem is going to free you from that, and he's going to expect you then to turn around and not be like you words were treated. Not You're going to be the antithesis of that. Because you know it so well, you know the pain that it causes. You know what you know what it feels like to be ostracized. You know what isolation feels like. You know what defaming your reputation and 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 downplaying your character. You know what that feels like. So it's on you. It's on me. It's on us to be the antithesis of all of that stuff. We live in a world, ladies and gentlemen, that is utterly in chaos, on complete fire. I don't know if you watch the news or not. You don't have to. Look around. Society is is degrading at a phenomenal rate. Are we that have the answer and have the truth, are we going to sit back and enjoy our Pesach Seder and enjoy our salvation and enjoy our sweet little Jesus, or are we going to start being the antithesis of what we see around us? I hope this is challenging, like I say every week. I hope it gives you something to think about. Pick up this book by Rabbi Sachs. You will not regret it. We'll continue this next week as we're in the middle of Hag Kamatzot. Until then, Hag Pesach Sameach. Love you all. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.